Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, Nagat. How are you doing? Hello. Hi, I'm okay. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, your name is, is quite a unique name. What yeah, you, yeah, it's an old Arabic name, and it I think it has two meanings. In, I think in Arabic it means rescuer right you can tell me if i'm wrong on that and in urdu as my father says means scent of a flower um but i think he just said that to make me feel nice it's quite an old-fashioned name i'm essentially the ethel of the white world (laughs) it's well now that you've said ethel i i I think (laughs) i'll stick with uh yeah i mean the arabic word is najat yeah um which is yeah savior saving someone from drowning yeah. Um, from kind of losing it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but, you know, uh, love to all those Ethels out there in the world. <laughs> no one keeps their daughters my name anymore. No one, I don't see any new girl, like newborn girls called uh, Nijat or Nigat at all. So it's an old, very old-fashioned name. And would you say you're an old-fashioned woman? I think... In my attire, in my appearance, I'm very old-fashioned. Um, and in, But in my thought, I'm incredibly progressive and a bit rebellious. Yeah. Because, so yeah. looks can be deceiving, let's just put it that way. People would brush me off quite quickly and not really recognize me because I wear shalwar kameez when I'm at home, yeah. wear my headscarf. So I look like a typical Pakistani lady who's just possibly stepped off the boat until I start talking and then... People are quite struck because they're like, oh, you actually don't have an accent when you talk. <laughs> well, they're quite struck when you sat on that uh, settee on BBC Breakfast. Um, incredibly so. But uh, it's funny, with with uh, BBC Breakfast, I didn't think they'd get somebody so gobby and so chatty. Um, so the first time I, I met the BBC Three Counties radio producer at an event, funnily enough, where my father was getting an award, and at the table, one of the chap who sat right to me, he turned out to be the BBC producer and he said, I've never met somebody so gobby and your father's the imam. Uh, come and did talk he actually use it. that word gobby? Yeah, he wow. did. He did. Because um, I'm very opinionated, yeah. uh, which I have to rein in sometimes. I think my mouth runs away slightly too fast until the brain kicks in. But also because I, uh, I will say things how they are. Um, and that comes from a little bit of the Punjabi blood that's come from my mother's side. Punjabi people can be quite hot-headed mm. um, in certain respects. And he said, come and talk about, because I started going on about women's health, because that's as a GP, that's my specialism. And I see a lot of health inequalities amongst, uh, especially the ethnic minorities that I deal with. So he said, come and talk about the menopause. And I was like, oh, no, you don't want me in the radio. Um, and I might say something really embarrassing. And he was like, no, no, come. Uh, so ended up going on to the Yasmin Khan show to talk about endometriosis, which is another 
horrible condition which causes painful heavy periods and with our Pakistani ethnic minority a subcontinent community it's not recognized as a condition it's debilitating and women put up for their symptoms for years and years and years get severe adhesions uh, with it to the point where they can suffer from infertility but it's always the woman's fault Mm. in our community the man will be encouraged to have another wife or a second wife and it's not seen as hang on let's look at these symptoms we could have put in preventative measures early on because of shame and taboo talking around periods and fertility and sex women don't come forward uh to their gp so i really wanted to highlight that and change a little bit if i could and say to women it's okay this is there's a condition there's a name for it it's not just because you're crying over some heavy periods but the bbc uh bosses over at salford city were listening into this gobby doctor <laughs> talking about heavy periods and uh Menopause Awareness Week came up and they said, will you come on the sofa and talk about your experiences with ethnic minority women? Because the menopause is a huge other issue where women don't seem to, it, especially in the ethnic minority, it's seen as a, a white woman's condition. In fact, my own mother, who's going through the menopause, and she won't mind me telling you this, said to me, only Gauriya go through this. So only white women go through this. Yeah, I love that, my... Gora. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was... I was literally astounded and it shook me so much. But this is the attitude that my own mother, who has a GP daughter who deals with this day in, day out, comes home and talks about it, still has this attitude. And Asian women are more likely to get conditions like osteoporosis because we cover from head to toe. There's a lack of vitamin D. And as we go through the menopause, osteoporosis is the biggest, uh, you know, uh, health in- infliction that happens through mm. the menopause heart disease we're higher risk of getting that once you go through the menopause and women will not come forward with their symptoms because they're too embarrassed mm. relationship dysfunction happens I see so many Pakistani men who will say that my wife has suddenly changed now she's in her 50s and that will impact their relationship the man will start getting high blood pressure, God forbid, diabetes, because that dysfunction happens within the relationship. Mm. And psychological health, as you know, uh, Heather, will always affect our physical health. Mm. And so it's on a bigger scale that we can actually think about protective measures, particularly within the NHS, where there is a lack of resource. And I don't know what will happen with the NHS as we progress through years. Well, I think, you know, something that you sort of... um put a finger on is this how women blame themselves for everything essentially you know if anything goes wrong within within the family within the relationship even within politics oh yes women's fault and you know i see this in the the women blame themselves yeah exactly it's not just a community thing it's like it's my fault It, it should have been something i picked up even the smallest of things we've got to get away from that um because women don't support women in certain cultures and if you don't change that, who will? But it's uh, it's difficult, and it it's not about just having this discussion. It's about cultural change, and culture cultural change takes such a long time, and it takes uh, not just one um, uh, group of people. It takes a lot of group of people 
to sort of look into it. And I think what's important um, for us being from ethnic minorities is to get the wider community to be involved in it. Yeah. And the wider community does want to help and the wider community is helping. But if we don't change within ourselves, how are we going to then... To accept that there is a problem. Yeah, accept that there is a problem. So the other biggest bugbear that I have is people hide their conditions. And I, I will be honest, I was part of that. So Gassim got very poorly. He needed a liver transplant. Uh, he was. We were told at six weeks old that he'll need this. And I hid it. Apart from me and my husband and my parents and my immediate siblings knowing, nobody else in the community knew. And this is a community that I see at every Friday prayers. Uh, this is a community that I've grown up with since I was about nine years old. They've seen me progress and uh, I go to their weddings, their funerals. I go to their houses almost on a weekly basis. Into this successful, confident, sorry to use the word gobby, uh, <laughs> uh, successful Pakistan, uh, Pakistani woman. And yet, and yet she chose to... There was this shame. It was, it was almost like... I don't want the sympathy and I still don't want sympathy or anything like that. I just want people to sit up and make a, make a difference. But there was almost like, if I speak to somebody in my community, uh, they'll gossip about me. And also if I do, then they might think that I'm only asking them or talking to them about it because I want a piece of their liver. Stupid things went through our minds and our, initial thing me and my husband was that we will just not tell anybody we will deal with this insularly in our own how did you get out of that mindset what changed um i think the donor family changed this so this was a this was a so Gassim was desperate we were desperate he was 24 hours from being put on to palliative care we were told that if he can't find a match, then he will be palliative care. He was 10 months old. I wasn't ready to bury him. I wasn't ready to let go of him. And being a medic, being a doctor, I knew that there is treatment available. And so why would you why would you not do the utmost thing? Because I, the day of judgment, I can't stand there, look at my child and say, I didn't do anything or I didn't try hard enough. So we looked at being living donors. Um, I was a match. I was a, I'm was. i a B positive. So I'm a match with my son. But the doctors really, the surgeons really um, said to me, Nagat, don't go down this road because we have to take half of your liver. There's one in 200 chance of death. There's uh, We don't do many live donor-related uh, donor transplants. Um, you will be off work. You It might affect you in the long run. What about future pregnancies? Also, you've got a dependent at home. You have a five-year-old child that needs you. But at that point, I remember it very clearly, I looked at the surgeon and I said to him, you can take any organ you want outside of, from me because I want to know that I've tried everything. And if my child lives, that's fine. Because I've done, I've done my life. I've lived it. I was 32 at the time. I've lived it. I've become a doctor. That's what I wanted to do all my life. I've looked after GPs for about 10, looked after NHS patients for coming up to nearly 10 years. I've done what I could do in society. And they they just said no. But we were desperate. That night, we got a phone call from 
I don't I'll never forget it two o'clock in the morning saying we've got a donor he's a match he's O positive he's universal we can it's not the best but we'll do it and we'll if it means that we save the mother and the child we will do this and I said okay but the donor family saved eight lives with their baby because he was universal and all their child did on that day was he went out on his bike without his helmet on something I do with my child sometimes in the garden but he went out on the road fell off and hit the back of his neck so he had a clean brainstem injury and at the hospital somewhere in the UK these parents were asked that we have this baby who has liver cancer we're desperate he's going to be made palliative if we don't get an organ would you be willing to donate your child's liver and this miracle just happened they said yes how that woman and i can only relate to the mother in this because as a mother i feel it how that woman had the courage at that time while her child is on a respirator to say do you know what i will give my baby to you cuz i can't take him home and someone else can take their child home and that just shattered my world into cuz you know we we hold our title so close to us i'm a doctor or i'm a lawyer i'm a consultant and we're amazing people nothing is making us amazing nothing makes us amazing if we don't shatter what is quid pro quo what we think value means means value to us where is humanity if you don't stand up to the wrongs in your society and i felt so amazed by this woman who had this courage to possibly go against whatever her beliefs was and just say you can have my child and she she shamed me into feeling shameful that i hid my child's illness so much so that i thought how can i reciprocate this woman who has given me time she's given me time with my child she's given me time to make memories with him when she can't make memories with her own baby and if i can't reciprocate this gift that she's given to me then what is the point of my titles what is the point of being a doctor what is the point of being gobby what is the point of being educated what is the point of being the a daughter of the daughter? imam yeah if i can't one explain to my community the need for donation get scholars to look at the scriptures because and also to look at the health inequalities that we bang on about which are created sometimes by ourselves because we don't talk about it yeah we don't come forward and i was part of that yeah yeah i mean uh, you know the more i live in this life the more i think one of the most important things is actually to uh, culture or nurture the virtue of courage yeah and kindness we forget that there's we turn on the news and we look at this terrible events happened and you 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 become hardened to it but actually there's good kind people full of humanity that we forget and we don't celebrate them yeah. we do, there's no mention of them and you forget that there's there's this this quiet people who are just working away day in day out 
who are at, who are doing the utmost selfless acts and to me this was such a huge selfless act because she didn't have to she could have said no but she knew her child was o positive and he went on to save eight other lives one of being my son to me if that is the greatest sacrifice as a mother i don't know what it is or is so she gave me the opportunity to take gossim home when she never got to take her child home how can i not then talk about it yeah. and demand change yeah yeah to uh, to sort of almost honor her how were you coping before before that decision before you got that decision as a as a mother as a doctor as a wife i i think medics we have this fail safe thing we throw ourselves into work hmm. and i i did that wholeheartedly i just threw myself into work any any emergency patients that needed seeing yes i'll do that any home visits that's needed doing for a palliative patients yes i'll do that i just wanted to run away from it and i and i didn't talk about it i kept quiet so gasim had his transplant in 2016 and it's only now in 2019 that i can talk about it and i never talked about it i didn't cry like now i cry at the drop of drop of a hat but do you know what throughout that i didn't cry everyone kept saying to me oh you're not crying you're not crying because your child is unwell you're not crying that you know he's going to be made palliative i just couldn't cry it was survival it was just making sure that i did the utmost possible it was pacing up and down corridors and badgering the consultants at king's hospital going when is a donor what are we going to do what what's going to happen because i knew and could envisage conversations before they even had them with me and being the parent of a sick child you almost become like mama bear there's this protective survival instinct that goes through you and i can't explain it in words but it was this doggedness that just said i will i will get through this so i didn't have time for emotions and then he was better he was fine and then one day at work i got a complaint and the complaint was that this child had fallen this 2 year old had fallen off his uh, uh, his changing mat and uh, i'd missed a bruise on his thigh i mean there was no bruise i documented it all but the parents felt that i wasn't compassionate enough or caring enough when mm. they brought their child in who was clearly distressed um and my senior partner at the surgery sat me down and said we've got you we've got this complaint and i it was just like suddenly everything shattered and i had a, a full blown panic attack because i felt i missed something just like i felt i missed something in gossim i felt i'm an awful doctor and do you know how complaints make us feel as doctors yeah. and i i just this i couldn't stop crying i went to the toilets locked myself in the toilets at work and i couldn't stop crying at all um somehow i managed to finish my clinic and i got home and my husband said to me you need to talk to someone and uh as a medic when you hear that from someone else who is a non-medic you do realize actually that's true i need to talk to someone and i went to see a lovely lovely friend of mine who's a uh, a cbt therapist and i think i just cried for 3 hours i didn't say anything i just cried because i hadn't cried and now look at me i cry all the time <laughs> um uh but it was uh 
it was that that just thought, how can I change these tears into something productive mm. and mm. not hide it? Because I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed that my child was unwell. Mm. I'm not ashamed that my community, uh, I hid it from them. And talking about it, if I can save one other life, and get the scholars to start the conversation about organ donation. Yeah. And on a wider scale, just get women not to blame themselves. Because yeah. I was part of that. Then I feel that I've, I've made a tiny, tiny change. Yeah, and, and, and definitely in our communities, women have a, uh, um, the most important role within the community. You know, how they With the nurturers. Well... If we can give them that belief in themselves and yeah. take away all those negative connotations within that discussion, they become the most important um, aspect of society. I mean, that's that's what I believe because, you know, they have influence of, over their husbands, over their sons, over their nephews, over their grand, grand um, grandsons, and then that changes... The woman never believes that. Well, these discussions <laughs> will change, and, and, and particularly coming from people like yourself and having that, um, you know, letting go of that negative emotion. I think that's really important. And, you yeah. know, having these frank conversations and, you know, having these safe spaces to talk about these things. Sometimes we can't do that in our communities. Sometimes yeah. we have to go out in order for us to find ourselves and then come back, you know, and yeah. then have that courage and, 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 that, and that inner truth to talk about these things. Because what you're doing is not just amazing, it's essential for us to evolve as a community because organ donation is such a massive problem. I mean, you know, in UK per se, but even more so in our community, you know, something like three people die a day from yeah. organ failure. You know, I was so shocked to look at the statistics because uh, last year, 2018, there was 1,800 people from black eth Asian ethnic minorities waiting on the transplant list. Mm. And last year, out of those people, one in five died just waiting. And some wait for up to six, seven years for things like kidneys, hearts, lungs. And... The, how can we ignore those statistics as a community when that's directly affecting my community? That's 1,800 people. And you can go onto the um, the blood and transplant website for that, the NHS blood and transplant website to get those statistics. Is that that's not even health inequalities. That's inequalities that we've we've contributed to as a community. Yeah. yeah. That's not someone else's fault. That's our fault our responsibility to change those statistics so if i can get faith leaders if i can get you know the I'd politicians like say, politicians and yeah, i just community average, leaders. average joe which i feel i am an average joe but you know air quotes average joe but just the average person on the street um who contributes so much quietly in the background just if they are made aware. Because even the world of donation transplant, there's lots of myths around that. Someone many, many years ago probably said, no, you can't donate blood. 
And then they just pass that on from generation to generation to generation for no one then to question it. Yeah. And we, we are products of our environment and what we're taught by our elders. There's no getting away from that. Yeah. And if you're quite an insular community, which my community is in, in Buckinghamshire, um, then how, how do you allow these new messages of technological advances that have come along in medicine, uh, be made aware if we don't get health advocates from our community who speak the language, who understand the psyche to come forward. Yeah. And it took the donor's family to open my eyes to that. that. As a medic, as my father who's the imam, surely we we have enough credentials to approach our community. Because if we don't do it, who will? Hopefully we'll ha- we, we have enough courage and enough energy and enough self, um, self-love to do these things. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are, you, are you still in contact with the, with the parents of the, uh, uh, the child that donated the liver? No, it, it's a very strict uh, system where there's complete, anon- it's completely anonymous. Mm. Mm. Uh, you don't get any contact with them. Uh, so about six months after Qasim had his transplant, because it took us six months after for him to recover, because he had sepsis after sepsis. He got his first liver. Um, the operation didn't go well. Then he had to go back into surgery uh, to to sort out some of the the, the anastomosis. He. Yeah, there's lots of complications. It's not so straightforward. But six months after his surgery, when I brought him home, I was just washing the dishes in the kitchen and I just thought about this mother and I just thought to her, to myself, I've got to thank her. There's this this compulsive need to thank her. So I contacted our transplant coordinator and they said, well, we can't give you her details. Um, We can just tell you a little bit about their story. Um, You can write to her. So I wrote to her but I never heard back. So mm. six months later, when we went to an outpatient appointment, I spoke to the transplant coordinator team again, and they said, you know, they saved eight lives and it took them a long time to bury their child. So they probably aren't ready to talk yet. And then I never heard anything back. And in the letter, it's quite strict because they take out anything identifying details um, related to yourself. And if there is a response, they, they, it goes through an intermediary who read the letter first because there's meant to be none of this thank you and giving to each other. And So I, I don't know who she is, but she's, she's with me every day. It's a really bizarre experience. I, I do think about her. When Gassim does something amazing, he started his first day at school, um, which the BBC came. <laughs> um, and he, I thought to myself, she probably wanted to do this with her child I don't I can only imagine that this was a young child um, because that's all they've told me but she when we took Gossam to the zoo uh, something that we'd never ever done as a family before uh, and he is now well enough his immune system strong enough to take him out and I thought to myself that's probably these memories that this mother wanted to make so there's there's almost like this tinge of guilt attached to every thing that Gossam does why? Because there is, why? Because because there's. I feel I feel for this other woman. I feel she's she's a part of me, 
And I feel for her because she's not making memories where I am making memories. And I and there's this liver that's genetically not mine and my husband's that's living, processing everything that the liver does and growing inside my child. That's her, her son is inside. It's a really weird, I can't explain it. Her son is with me. But that's what brings us all together. Uh, Najat, you know, this is this is what humans are about. That's how we, uh, you know, we've um, survived and thrived for so long because we help each other out. That's what works. But we forget that, Heather. How many times have we forgotten forgotten that? We think humans don't help. Yeah, yeah. But you know, you're doing it every day in clinic. You're doing it every yeah. single day. And, you know, one of the things that um, we don't do enough as doctors, we don't appreciate the impact that we have on other human beings on a daily basis. You know, we may think a certain gesture or a certain word or a certain sentence is, you know, pretty straightforward for us. But for the patient, it's life changing forever. Yeah. You, know, when, you know, when you tell them oh, that's OK, the blood tests are fine, you'll be OK. Just saying OK to them just changes not just their lives, but their families' lives, their communities' lives, and not just their generation, but for generations to come. Yeah, and it's that kind of just stopping and just being aware of what you're doing. I think that's, um, I think that's massive. Um, we're coming towards the end of our very um, emotional podcast today. I know. I'm so sorry. And it's Why? all your fault. You're making me cry. <laughs> yeah, lot. yeah, yeah. I do that. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Uh, well, um, you know, we we stories are what makes us and breaks us. And you know, if if and and your story is very inspirational. And I think the more you talk about your story, the better, because we are in need of um, <laughs> organs. <laughs> you know that's yeah. just a fact of life um, I'd like to ask you this last question what would you say to yourself your nine year old self that first came here to the UK having been through what you've been through what would you say to the uh, Najat or Nagat that was uh, that first came here I would just say to her make sure that you never give up and always hold on to hope. Hope drives me a lot. Being hopeful. I think that's what I would say. Because hope brought me here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, like, you know, you should th definitely think about writing some books or stories or blogs or something like that, just to so, so people know about your... Because you've got an amazing story, and I think it's worth sharing it with the rest of um, the world. Um, thank how, you so much for having me on your podcast oh that's okay uh, and, and, and how can people get hold of you what's the best way so uh, they can find me on uh, they can find me on twitter uh, at Dr Nagat Arif where I post a lot of things um, I'm also on Instagram again with the same name Dr Nagat Arif um, and I'm happy to be contacted uh my GP surgeries in Buckinghamshire, um, but yeah, Twitter and Instagram or LinkedIn—they're the best places to find me. And then, and then you'll get the Gobi Nugget. 
<laughs> yeah, there's no nothing wrong with being gobby and being opinionated. Absolutely nothing wrong with it whatsoever. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this installment of the Surgical Spirit podcast. For all the latest in the world of Surgical Spirit, don't forget to follow on Twitter at The Third Eye Doc and catch me on Facebook at the page The Third Eye Doctor. You can visit the website at www.thethirdeyedoctor.co.uk for more information on the work that I do. And please send us feedback and questions and suggestions for the podcast. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. I've been Dr. Haida Al-Hakim, and I'll see you next time.